0: Hi, I'm David Freudberg from Humankind. Occasionally on this podcast, we present classic programs from our archive, including the one you'll hear now from our series, Kindred Spirits. For that program, we sought out people of many backgrounds, traditions, and life experiences to understand the personal beliefs that give them purpose and animate their activities. If you like what you hear on this podcast, we're asking for your help to keep it going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage, click on "How You Can Help." Thanks.
1: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings and mercy of Allah be God. with you. God. Allahu akbar. Our Father. So, I'm here. In te domine speravi, non confundar in eternum. In you, O Lord, I trust. May I never Shema
0: be lost.
1: Walk cheerfully over the earth, answering that of God in every one. You're listening
0: to Kindred Spirits. Welcome to Kindred Spirits. I'm David Freudberg. Our guest today is Rabbi Harold Kushner, author of When Bad Things Happen to Good People, a book that has touched on the dilemma faced by people undergoing hardships. Rabbi, how is it that in a difficult moment, when we may be feeling sadness or anger or just feeling broken, or that life has been unfair to us in some fundamental way how at such a time can we take comfort in god who is supposed to be so kind
1: david let me answer your question at two levels one affirmative one negative negative. one way to find god comforting and this is one of the important things i've tried to say in my written statements and when i go around speaking is to get over the view that when we're suffering, it's because God wants us to suffer. I can't believe, when I see the varieties of human anguish that I have to deal with as a clergyman, I can't believe that God wants these things to happen. And so I would like to think that when we're hurting, God is at our side. He's not our enemy, he's our friend. He's not the source of our problem, but he's grieving and hurting with us, even as we are. He is the source of our ability to feel outrage and unfairness, and even pain and compassion for another. I think the first thing you have to do to find God comforting is to realize that this wasn't his idea. He doesn't want you to be hurting like that. The other, in my book, I quote a Hasidic rabbi who over a hundred years ago said, human beings are God's language. Where is God when we need him? I would like to believe that God comes to us in the incarnation of caring friends and neighbors. What gets us through the hard times? I suspect not so much our theology as our friends, other people reaching out to us. What we need to know is that we are not alone and we're not unworthy. One of the hard things about suffering, one of the really hard things about experiencing misfortune, is that when something bad happens to us, there is a crazy, irrational, compulsive corner of our mind which says to us, I must have done something bad and I deserve this. This is happening to me because I was a bad person. And now that my punishment is public, everybody will know I'm a bad person and they'll shun me. When people stay away from us in our grief, in our misery, they may understand that they're staying away because of their limitations. They can't handle seeing us hurt. We represent something threatening to us. The the divorcee, for example, whose friends can't talk to her because she represents the incarnation of a fear that they can't handle they may understand that it's their cowardice and their weakness which is keeping them away but we don't understand that we think that they're judging us and finding us not worthy of caring about that's why it's so desperately important when we have been hurt that people gather around us hug us hold our hands reassure us and tell us that we are worth caring about and feeling sorry for
0: with that Support from friends and family, Uh, hard moments are easier to get through. How about in that painful solitude, which anyone going through a crisis uh, must ultimately confront? What comfort can be found in that?
1: This is precisely where I think prayer is important. As you know, David, from having read my book, I have a kind of an unconventional understanding of prayer. I don't think prayer is sending God your Sears Roebuck shopping list. Please send me the following items from your catalog and bill them to my account. Prayer is not asking God to do something for you. Prayer is not informing God of something he would not otherwise know. You may not have noticed it, God, but I am in the following circumstance and this is how I feel about it.
0: Is that because you believe God knows everything?
1: I'm not sure what it means to say God knows, but I don't think of prayer as God's newspaper, God's wire service, you know, bulletin, flash, here's what's happening to one of your subjects in case you weren't paying attention. Prayer for me, David, is an invitation to God to be with us. It's an opening of ourselves to God, a way of saying, I don't want to be alone, I can't handle this if I'm alone, reassure me that I'm not alone. Sometimes, it's a way of saying to God, as I interpret Jacob's prayer just before he wrestles with the angel, a way of saying, I have to do something very hard and very scary, and I'm not sure if I'm up to it. Give me your strength and give me your confidence, and I think I can do it. Sometimes, (laughs) prayer is the, the outcry of a person in a hospital bed, in pain, not sure what he has to look forward to, You know what I've discovered, just working with a lot of very, very sick people, I found, for the most part, people are not afraid of dying so much as they are afraid of two other things, of pain and of being abandoned. Sick children and very sick older people also. If you can assure them that you're going to do whatever you can to limit their pain, and more importantly, if you can assure them that you will be with them as long as they need you, That you're not going to abandon them you're not going to give up on them you're not going to drop them and find some healthier person some more responsive more able person that's comforting God's role in this is to be the one who is with us even when visiting hours are over and everybody has gone home prayer is a way of saying to God let me know that I'm not alone let me know that you care about me that you haven't given up on me. Just let me know that I have not been abandoned." The ability to speak to God and feel that he is listening, that he'll change things. Prayer is not a request that God take away my problems. Prayer is a request that God give me the grace and the strength to deal with my problems, however overwhelming they may seem.
0: I know that you come to this very difficult concern not abstractly In 1977, your teenage son Aaron died after a long illness of a disease that causes rapid aging. How did that affect your relationship with God?
1: In the beginning, David, when we were struck by the news, I tried to answer that the way I had for six years as a rabbi been telling people how to deal with their own tragedies and their own traumas. Up until that point, as a naive, innocent, inexperienced rabbi, I would visit a home where there had been a death or a serious illness or an accident or a tragedy of some sort. And I would say to some people, I can't understand why it's happening, but there must be a reason someplace. We simply don't have all the facts. We don't see how it fits into the big picture. If we could see the whole picture, we would understand why what's happening is right and necessary. When we got the news, when Aaron was three years old, that he suffered from progeria, that he would spend the rest of his life physically handicapped, in pain, psychologically vulnerable, and that he would die in his early teens, I tried those answers on myself, and they didn't work. They did not comfort me. They served only to to try and take away my rage and my anger, to, to take a situation which was unacceptable, and make it acceptable. And I was full of questions, and I was full of anger, and I didn't want anybody to tell me, if you're religious, you don't ask questions, you assume it makes sense someplace. My original response was never to doubt God's existence, but very profoundly to doubt his fairness and his kindness. I had to wonder at that point, back when Aaron was three years old, If there is a God, is he cruel, is he uncaring, is he vindictive, is he fastening uh, on some small inadvertent sin I committed and punishing me in this cruelest of possible ways for it? Am I really so much worse than other people whose children are healthy? I couldn't believe that. I didn't want to. I could not have continued as a religious person believing that God was like that. And so I came to what was for me the only possible conclusion. God is not a God of power. He is a God of justice and compassion. He doesn't want the child to die. He doesn't want the young husband to be crippled with illness. He doesn't want the young wife to be struck down in an automobile accident. He doesn't send the flood or the fire or the earthquake or the heart attack or the malignant tumor. God wants us to live good and happy lives, but there are some things in the world which he cannot control. When I was able to come to the conclusion that God is not all-powerful, that some things happen which are not his will. At that point, I could affirm not only his existence, but his goodness. He was a God worthy of being worshipped. About a year ago, there was an article about me and about my book in Time magazine where they quoted a seminary professor from some theological school, I think, in Iowa, saying, a God who is not all-powerful is not worthy of being worshipped. I read that and I said to myself, you know, that's the sort of attitude which a fellow in a classroom would have, where your theology is worked out on a blackboard so it has no loose ends. Here in the front lines where you're dealing with sick children and dying parents and broken marriages and accidents and illnesses all the time, only a God who is not all-powerful is worthy of being worshipped. A God who could stop this and doesn't. A God who could redeem people from illness and for whatever reason chooses not to, that's a God who's not worthy of worship. He may have all the power, he may have all the cards, but darn it, I'm not going to pray to a God like that. You know, one just pauses at
0: the thought that God is not all-powerful. Is it possible? that even suffering is built into the universe as part of an intentional lesson?
1: I was with you until you said an intentional lesson. Because sometimes the suffering isn't worth, the lesson isn't worth the suffering. I I offer the example in my book, for example, of the child who toddles away from a babysitter and falls into a swimming pool and drowns. What's the lesson? That the swimming the, the babysitter should be more attentive? That's hardly a lesson worth causing a child's death. No, I I can't buy that. I can believe, perhaps, that God created a world in which illness and accident and cruelty were possible, but not that he wills every specific ailment and every specific accident. I can believe, for example, that hypothetically, God could have created a perfect world, a world where nothing would ever go wrong, a world without murder, without crime, without floods and earthquakes, but that God loves goodness more than he loves perfection. There is something kind of static, finished, boring about perfection. And maybe rather than create a world where everything had to work out right, God created a world where we would be free to choose goodness without being obliged to because freely choosing the good is something so precious in God's sight that he's willing to run the risk that we will hurt each other and hurt ourselves before we get around to it. I can understand God creating a less than perfect world that way. I can't understand his saying, I want this child to suffer, I want this plane to crash, I want this house to burn, so that people will grow spiritually. I had a woman call in a question once on a radio program I was doing. She said to me, Rabbi Kushner, why can't you accept the idea that God wanted your son to die so that you would become a more sensitive person and write this book, which is going to help millions? Isn't it worth one life to help all these others? I find that a very hard answer to accept. I would not be capable of torturing and killing an innocent child for any kind of goal. If somebody said that I could bring peace to the world by kidnapping and murdering the grandson of Yuri Andropov, I would be incapable of doing it. If somebody said I could find the cure for cancer by torturing an innocent child, it would not be worth it. And I can't believe, David, that God is less compassionate and less just than I am. I can't imagine that God would send suffering and premature death into the life of a happy, bright, innocent child for any kind of ancillary gain that I can think of? Where is his justice? Where is his idea that every life has unique, sacred value? I learned that from the Scriptures. Isn't God committed to those values as well?
0: We're talking with Rabbi Harold Kushner. He's author of When Bad Things Happen to Good People. If God is not one who wills suffering or tries to uh, teach us by cruelly testing us, what then is the nature
1: of that power called God? I'm not sure you're asking the right person. <laughs> I don't know what God is about. I... Actually, David, there, there are times where I feel apologetic for having written a book about God. You know, traditionally, Jews don't do theology. Jews traditionally consider it arrogant to write a book explaining God, describing the nature of God. For Jews, theology has not been about God's nature. It's been about man's obligations to God. Theology is about revelation, about human behavior. What should we do? What is the vision of the good life in God's sight? What do I know about the nature of God? You know what is probably the most difficult passage in all of scripture to interpret? It's in Exodus chapter 32, right after the incident of the golden calf. Moses says to God, if I am to represent you on earth, I have to know who you are and what you stand for. Let me see your face. And God says to Moses, you can't see my face. No human being can see my face and live. But hide here in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by. And you can't see my face, but you can see my back. Now, David, if you take that literally, that's a nonsensical verse. What does it mean you can see God's back? What I understand it to mean is that we human beings cannot see God face to face, but when God has passed through, we can see his after effects. We can't see God, we can see the difference that he has made. What is God? For me, God in action is the ability of ordinary people to suddenly do extraordinary things. The ability of people suddenly to come up with spiritual capacities that they never had before. That all of a sudden, people who need to be brave are brave. That, th- For example, the parents of a retarded child don't run out of love. They could not possibly have started with a 15-year supply of love. When they use up all their love, where do they get more? That, for example, there's a woman in Philadelphia by the name of Diane Rubin who wrote a book called Caring. It's about her mother's terminal illness with cancer. I was sent an advance copy of the book. The publishers wanted a quote from me, which I was very happy to give them because it's a lovely book. Diane Rubin was an average middle-aged woman who didn't get along very well with her mother, found her mother kind of oppressive and kvetchy and intrusive, and she had her own problems. And then when her mother was sick and Diane Rubin had to take care of her, all of a sudden she developed a capacity for empathy, for sensitivity, for loving. She not only found in her mother things which she had never noticed before, she found qualities in herself which she knows were not there last month. For me, David, at the very least, God is that power outside ourselves which reinforces replenishes our love our courage our devotion when we've used it up and which gives us the qualities of courage and strength that we didn't have before but we find we have them on the day we need them what positive lesson can a person of faith take
0: take from a a trying period does it teach them compassion for others is that what benefit we can derive?
1: It can, but I would have to emphasize that, to a large degree, the choice is ours. I tell people today, when you find yourselves in a difficult, unfairly trying situation, don't ask why, because why only focuses on the past. And the longer you look at the past, the more helpless you feel, because you can't do anything about it. Ask, what do I do now? You're going to be different. In what way do you want to be different? It's not that God sends us the tragedy so that we will learn something. The tragedy happens for whatever reason, laws of nature, human cruelty, bad luck, and then all we can do, because we can't prevent it and we can't undo it, all we can do is choose how we want to respond to it. There's a family in my congregation, for example, I tell the story in the book, whose son was killed in a school bus accident. Their response, instead of staying home and grieving, was to work for school bus safety standards. The mother whose child is killed by a drunk driver, instead of becoming jealous of all her friends who have their children alive, works to found a chapter of MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. The widow, whose husband dies of cancer, has the choice of staying home all day in a house dress and never putting on any makeup and not talking to people. Or, if she doesn't want to do that, she can choose to go out and reclaim the right to life and, for example, become neighborhood chairman of the the cancer fund collection. That's her way of being angry at the disease which has come into her life and darkened it. We can choose how we want to respond. We can become compassionate. We can become people with greater insight into what's going on. My way of responding was to write a book and travel around the country lecturing and do radio interviews about what I've learned. You don't have to write a bestseller. If, if somebody you know has just lost his job and you've been through that, you're uniquely qualified to call up and say, you know, I've been through it and I know how hard it is for you. Can we sit down and talk about it? Can I buy a lunch? Can we go out together? If all you have gained from your own experience is a sense of empathy, knowing what works and what doesn't work for the grieving person. If it gives you the capacity to bear witness and to say, I have gone through that and I have come out intact, and you can believe that you will too, that's taking a meaningless tragedy and redeeming it from meaninglessness. That's your choosing to turn this sad event into something which will yield a brighter side as well. But it's your choice. I can't believe God sent it so that you would learn the lesson. It happens, and when it happens, then instead of asking why, ask yourself, how can I choose to respond to this so that I can transcend it and become a better person?
0: What are the dimensions of life built in by God that are there to catalyze our own spiritual growth? If these um, Difficult moments hardships cruelties are not sent by him. How does he? Impel our our progress spiritually
1: First I think that God has given us a world of rules of law and order That even if we can't understand why some people get cancer we can believe that there's a reason someplace We can apply our God-given intelligence to try and figure out what that is There's a story that Ernest Jones tells about Freud in his biography of Freud. When Freud was a medical school student, a doctor who had just lost a patient to terminal bone cancer came out of the operating room, showed Freud the cancer-written bone, and said to him, if I ever come face to face with God, I'm going to shove this in his face and ask him why he permitted such things in his world. And Freud is supposed to have answered, if I ever come face to face with God, I'll ask him why he didn't give me the intelligence to find a cure for it. I think we have the human intelligence, if we would concentrate it, if we would use it right, to relieve a lot of the suffering that's going on. I think that's one of the ways, one of the capacities God gives us. I believe, for example, that when we start spending as much money on cancer research as we spend on cigarettes and cosmetics, we'll find out what causes cancer and how we can relieve the pain of people. I think God has permitted us to evolve in such a way that we respond to the company of other human beings. We are very different in other people's company than we are alone, you know that. People's presence, people's caring strengthens us. A word of encouragement, I heard a beautiful story the other day, teenage boy had been involved in an automobile accident, he was drunk, he was driving carelessly, cracked up a car, And a classmate was killed in the accident, and the driver came out intact. Not only did he feel terribly guilty, but all the other high school students hated him for it. And he would walk through the corridors of the high school and feel this burden of hatred, of judgment, of condemnation. That added to the burden of his own guilt, brought him to the point where he couldn't take it anymore. He decided one day he was going to go home after school and take his life. He was going to commit suicide. He could not stand being hated that much. In the corridors of the high school before the last period, a girl walking by slipped him a note that said, hang in there, Kevin, we're rooting for you. And that pulled him back from the brink. That one simple act of kindness, one person saying, I care about you, was enough to make life worth bearing. We are constructed in such a way that the affection, the concern of other people is immensely strengthening for us. I visit people in hospitals, and I visit people who have just suffered bereavement, as a way of saying, I care about you, God cares about you, your neighbors care about you, you're a person who doesn't deserve this, you're worth caring about. That accessibility to words and gestures of kindness, is one of the things which immensely replenishes the human spirit. The most important thing I would like to tell people who may find themselves trying to bring consolation to a friend who's hurting, is that a person who's hurting doesn't want an explanation, he wants consolation. If somebody says, what did I do to deserve this? The last thing you want to do is give him a list of what he did to deserve this. If somebody says, why me? That's not really a question, it's a cry of pain. And you help the person, not when you theologically explain why God is doing this to him, but when you ease his pain. Don't give him a long, complicated answer. Hold his hand and give him a hug, and tell him that you care about him and you believe he doesn't deserve this. That will help him a lot more than your explanation of God will.
0: Thank you very much. We've been talking with Rabbi Harold Kushner. He's author of When Bad Things Happen to Good People. From Natick, Massachusetts, I'm David Freudberg for Kindred Spirits.
1: Episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.